everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Mental Radio, where we talk about mental health from a holistic perspective. I'm your host, Jesse Zuckman. This episode, we're talking about recovery, relationships. When is it time to start looking for a partner if you're in recovery? What's too early? What's uh, appropriate? How do you go about it? What should you keep in mind? Yada, yada, yada. Um, before we get to today's show, quick reminder, as always, nothing on the podcast is medical advice or medical care, not even a little bit. You got to talk to your doctor. You got to talk to your mental health care provider if you have if you have questions about your mental health. And if you want to support the show, please share our content. It really, really helps. Um, Spotify, iTunes, they do a pretty bad job at promoting the podcast. So if you want to see us grow, please share our content. It makes a big difference. And you can check us out over at mentalhealthmedia.org if you'd like to plug in more. Um, that said, all that out of the way, um, we'll start this conversation off a little bit about relationships and mental health recovery. It is a nice day to be here with Dr. Broderick Sawyer. How are you doing, my friend? Pretty good, man. It's a nice day. It's a nice day. It's very it's nice. It's a nice day. day. I'm glad it's uh, nice in Louisville. It's a nice day here outside of Seattle. Um, so I just wanted to set a, we, we were talking about setting aside some time to just talk about how to manage relationships, how to get into relationships, mm-hmm. you know, primarily romantic relationships while you're dealing with depression while you're dealing with mental health recovery. Um, and, uh, you know, I can speak certainly I'm, I've been in therapy for 10 years now, um, with a primary diagnosis of bipolar two, and it's been a long journey and I haven't figured it out, but you know, totally as none of us have as human beings, Mm -hmm. but I thought it might make sense, uh, to just, talk a bit about our own experiences and your I mean you you are a doctor but you uh, also have your own experience in recovery that you can speak to as well and maybe if people are just starting to think about this um, or they're looking for new ideas maybe they could get turned on to some new uh, mm. new possibilities out there yeah man it's hard relating because you in recovery, First, you sort of realize that you have an issue that's preventing you from living a full life and relationships. Um, that's a it's a huge, huge part because first you want to relate to others in an authentic way, but then you've you've been also cut off from yourself. So how you relate to yourself is is out of sorts. So that's mm. for me that that was the first step. And then kind of continuing along those lines, then it starts to be like, okay, now I can relate to myself well enough so that now I can start to relate to others well enough to get into more authentic relationships, whether that's romantic or, you know, friendship or whatnot. Um, Once you get into those spaces, you still realize that you just have shit to work through because you'll still get triggered, you know, all those different things, but you're trying to like rely back on, that new way that you're relating to yourself to continue to integrate those new ways of being. This is mm-hmm. the, possibly the most abstract sentence I think I've ever, <laughs> 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 which is saying a lot for me. But, right. uh, yeah. but, let, but okay, let's get, let's get down to the, the real then. Let's do what it. can, can people who are dealing with acute depression have healthy relationships? Just can you, mm-hmm. is it even possible? I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. 
um, it, it takes radical honesty. And if someone is radically honest with themselves about what they need uh, from a partner mm-hmm. in, the, in those relationships and communicates that from a place of authenticity and then the, the person that they're with um, hears them. And mm-hmm. then authentically says back, yes, I can provide those things from a place right. of authenticity. Then, yeah. But I think, you know, like the authentic communication uh, about what I might need from a partner due to mental health uh, issues. Right. So I'll just speak for my for myself. Um, so I just have, uh, you know, a whole menu of uh, diagnoses. But when someone experiences trauma. So when I experienced trauma, um, the ways in which I viewed other people um, were in such a way that they weren't safe. So I couldn't authentically communicate my exact needs to them. And that was unconscious. So for someone with, uh, with acute depression who doesn't, doesn't know what kinds of unconscious things they might be uh, sort of acting out, um, with a with a partner, how can mm-hmm. they communicate their needs authentically unless they've done that inner work to become aware right. of what they're dealing with, even if they're, it's not healed? How aware are you of what needs to be healed? Right, right. I mean, and, and that's I guess that's why you know in so many recovery programs they even say, don't try to be in a relationship in the first year. Mm-hmm. You know, don't even try. I guess this is I always I never really got an, the answer like why exactly and why a year, but you can start to think about it because especially like. A lot of us have mental health struggles because of of, uh, childhood trauma or just a dysfunctional childhood where we were told that it wasn't okay to ask for what we needed, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and then we neglect ourselves and we blame ourselves and we have an internal sense of shame and we certainly don't have any experience with asking for help and expressing our needs or even knowing what those things are. So it sounds like like maybe you are on the team of, yeah, maybe you should wait until you have one foot into recovery before you actually start dating um, and looking mm. for that long-term uh, relationship yeah. or partner. Yeah, but then the, there's the other side of the coin, right? Which is like, well, if I meet, if I bump into someone, a nice little meet cute, I'm supposed to. <laughs> I, think that's a, I think that's the first time I've ever used that phrase, like ever. This is like I've scoffed at it before, but I've never used it. Um, <laughs> I've never heard this word. You've never heard it? Oh man! Oh man! Um, you, you bump into someone at the park or something, and you just oh, you just you feel the chemistry or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Think people listening. It doesn't mean like oh, I can't be with you, and I can't even explore it because. You know, I'm in recovery right now, even though we have all these things in common and whatnot. Um, I guess I because you're healing, but you're not healed. Right. You know what I'm saying? So it's that it's definitely like a both and because uh, when we think about relationships from a perspective of using our relationships to work through our stuff, um, then if I... Am you know if I struggle with with trauma, so I'll just talk about myself. So if I struggle with trauma, and then I enter into a relationship, and then I start to um, feel attuned to that person. So I think we all like start out by sort of like you know 
that that little push and pull a little bit. It's it's more so about common interest. You may not uh, really get real with a person right away in terms of emotional intimacy and whatnot. But then once you feel comfortable, then you start to, and then that's when you might project your fears onto this person. So if it's a fear of abandonment, you might uh, text them more often than you had been. Um, so now you've invested a little bit and now you're like, oh, I don't want to lose this person. So then all of your shit starts coming out. All of the stuff that, that hasn't been worked through comes out. And I think in that process, it's not a matter of um, you know, saying, oh, my stuff is coming out, so I shouldn't approach this fearful situation at all. It means communication. So um, something that, that I've done um, before um, and will continue to do, um, I think we all have our process and always want to improve upon it, um, is when I start to feel that level of attunement and I feel my anxiety go up, I know, oh, Roderick, there it is. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, you can communicate this to this person like, hey, this is kind of what's happening for me in this moment. And I just want you to know that this has been, you know, my history of mental illness. Mm-hmm. I work very, very hard on it. Mm-hmm. But um, sometimes this will happen. And I work really hard to take a lot of responsibility for uh, for my own projections rather than believing that, oh, well, you said this and that. So that means you're going to leave me. I know that that's not real. Um, and sometimes I might need space to work out my own reaction, but that's a reflection of me, not you. Um, but then also that might mean I might try to keep you away from those intimate sides of myself, you know, because I'm not, sometimes I might get a little skittish, you know, or this or that. So they kind of know where I'm at and they can know what to expect and make an informed decision. Mm-hmm. Um, also about how they want to continue, um, but it's, and are you it's, just yeah. are you scared they're just going to run out the door at that moment? Because that's I certainly am. I can be, but yeah. I would rather them run out of the door now than yeah. not than wear a mask for six months mm-hmm. and um, not due to COVID. I mean, an actual like <laughs> personality mask for six months, not share this really big thing about myself, and then right. tell them that hey, this is kind of what goes on for me. This mm-hmm. is what I need, um, you know, so far on my healing journey. Uh, and then, you know, and then they run out, you know, six months later and, right. it, and I, when I wasn't comfortable, they fell in love with the, with not the real, with, with not the real me. You know what I'm saying? Right. I'd rather just right. rip the bandaid off and then, yeah, be able to move on and explore other relationships. This is something that comes up on Twitter pretty regularly, which is, do you disclose and how early? Mm. Now, like for me, I like, it comes up like it's on it's on my like all my mental health projects are like on Instagram, which is connected to whatever hinge. And I don't know if it's still hooked up if Tinder works that way. I haven't. Mm-hmm. But people see it and I'm just like, fuck it at this point. Mm-hmm. And the problem is I attract a lot of people who are not in therapy that want help, mm-hmm. which is terrible. You know, and then I end up, okay, I'm doing my work and now I'm like trying to like answer somebody's question about therapy. And this is a mess. Do you, do you find yourself getting, ever getting into that as, as a doctor? Like people find out, oh, you're a psychologist. Dude, oh. I don't, I don't tell people, man. Oh, really? I don't, uh, <laughs> I, I like, dude. So like on dating profiles and stuff, I put, I put meditation teacher. Um, uh-huh. cause that's more of just, what I identify as. Yeah. Um, and then 
you know, if, if they ask about day job and career, like, oh, yeah, I'm a therapist. Um, <laughs> Cause, cause, dude, like when I used to, when I used to say I'm a psychologist, it used to become instantly like clam up, yeah. And then after the clamming up, then it comes just a, a slew of questions about mental health and yeah. you know what should I and their do? Own they shit. start like, yeah, 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 and I just yeah. like, uh, uh-uh. uh, like I'm not holding that kind of space, yeah. You know, for me, that's kind of like my boundary, yeah. Um, but yeah, man, to to your point uh, earlier. When, when to disclose, I guess in, in my example that I gave of my process, that's the moment when my mental illness will begin to affect the relationship mm. as far as I'm aware. Right. You know what I'm saying? Then, okay, they now they need to know this um, because it's it's impacting. It's going to influence my behavior mm-hmm. uh, with, with them. But also that's a product of unconsciousness. How conscious am I of something? You know, or at what point is it? affecting it you know and that's a it's a process of recovery just increasing level of levels of consciousness um yeah. also an ethics thing to me too i want someone really? to How know so? uh if i if i don't tell someone like so in that example i gave um that was a few months back i think off air we might have talked about that like someone texted me something and it was mm-hmm. intimate and it triggered some anxiety and i felt like dissociation i was like oh yeah, yeah. i have a history of trauma oh yeah mm-hmm. um so in that moment if i didn't you know call them later in the night and and you know tell them hey you know this is just kind of some stuff that i struggle with i've been hurt in the past i have this this mental health history as well i work really hard on it and you know, I just want, you know, you to know that this is something that I might project uh, into this relationship due to just my own stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Just so you're aware and all of that. And then she kind of shared some of her triggers um, and, and all of that. And, you know, it just becomes more so about fear rather than, um, you know, mental illness. But just mm-hmm. how can we relate beyond our stuff? Not what we identify with, but just the stuff that gets in the way of authentic connection. Um, but with mental illness in particular, as far as ethics, um, the way that I view it is I don't want someone internalizing my pushing them away as meaning something negative about them or something they did or something that they did, you know, because then I'm causing um, harm. Maybe that's, I don't know if that's possible, you know, even if that it did go down like that, um, but at the very least, I don't want to contribute to any emotional pain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, as far as the pain that was given to me by my upbringing, I don't want to create those same relational patterns right. where, I'm, where I am hurting people. Right, right, right. Which takes, I mean, that, and that's not going to happen just immediately. That takes real work dedication. And that might not even be year one, but maybe it is. If you're really mm-hmm. dedicated to it, it might be. Um, but... But geez, I mean, I just end, always end up on the other side of it. Like for me personally, and maybe it's my profiles and what I disclose and maybe I need to like think about that. But I, and, and on Twitter, so much, Twitter, I gotta, there's a, in mental health Twitter, it is like 90% women hmm. on the mental health Twitter. So I, all the time I see, oh my goodness, I can't find a guy who's in therapy. How am I, guys get in therapy. What's wrong with you guys don't like... Look, I can't find a woman in therapy. I don't, and and I've been dating post therapy for a long time. I found a couple of people that like, oh yeah, I go once a month, and it's like my friend, and she's a therapist, and we go for a walk. walk. Like, nobody's in therapy. Like I, I need to find somebody who's in therapy. 
and for me, this is the biggest struggle. Because even if I do say these things, there's not a listening for it. And people don't really know what it means, you know, and they don't, they haven't done their own work. So like for me, I got to find someone who like has that secure attachment already and is already coming from a healthy place or is doing the work. And I have not been able to find somebody. Um, and as, as he, as much as I have healed, I, those and now I would say, like, before it was, like, 100% people maybe were even in crisis was I was attracting, you know. Mm. Now it's, like, 50-50, and the 50 who are in crisis, I'm very mindful of. Um, and, you know, it doesn't mean that we can't hang out, but it just means the relationship is different, and I have an awareness about where they are. Mm. Um, but I don't, what do you think? What are, would you have any mm. advice for me on this? Come on. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I guess my first thought is, and this is something that I try to, I think, especially as a mental health professional, you get indoctrinated into the system to think that therapy is the only method of. No, 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 no. I don't. If if someone is like really into yoga or like has their practice, that's okay, Mm. too. That's okay, too, for me. That's okay. Yeah, that's what I think about, too. Like, um. Does this person, are they at home inside of themselves, Mm, mm -hmm. you know? And it just is what it is. And then sometimes I think the other uh, thing I try to keep in mind, and I had to learn that just because someone is more anxious on the earlier and the earlier sides, you know, of a relationship doesn't mean that that's the way they are. So because I had to work through this, because this is interesting. Let me try to, okay, let me describe this succinctly. Okay, Broderick. Um... So I was I was seeing a woman maybe about like a year ago or something like that. And we went out on our first first date or, or whatnot. And I remember her like very, very nervous. Like, yeah, where do you want to go? Well, I guess we could I guess we could stay here or we can go there. What what do you want? Well, I think we should and just like sputtering out. And I was kind of looking at her and I could have interpreted it as Oh, like, oh, this person, like, has got issues. And I start, imme- <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, judging them immediately. Yeah. So now my judging yeah. is coming from a place, I later figured out, coming from a place of, Broderick, you don't want to be abandoned, so find any way to reject everybody. You see mm. what I'm saying? So I say didn't that see- again. Say that again. Yeah. We got to hit that home. Hit Say hit that it, again. Hit it home. Broderick, <laughs> Broderick uh, you are deathly afraid of getting abandoned, so reject everybody so that you don't get abandoned. That was unconscious for a while, and that's just what I would do. So some natural anxiety would be interpreted as, oh, something's wrong with them. Nope, 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 nope. And coming from this meditation teacher and all this and that, I won't judge people if I have no stakes in it, but if like my trauma gets triggered, all of a sudden I'm going into safety mode unconsciously. Um, and then I, I observed my own reaction as I sort of, you know, kept seeing this person. And then I saw myself becoming anxious. And then I thought to myself, oh, well, I guess there's something wrong with me. If I, It's like, no, bro, you just got nervous and she's nervous and you're two humans. And most people on average are kind of insecure and kind of anxious. And that's what it is. So can you just exist with a person and get to know them in a non-formal way? 
to just get just develop trust and attunement and just deepen a connection without the judging, because I think trauma in particular causes, especially if trauma was at the hands of others, it causes that push reaction. And then it's like, wait, wait, wait. And then, then you pull back and you try to, you know, get them back and then they come back and you're like, oh, no, no, never mind. It, it's just like that whole process. I think once we see it in ourselves and watch ourselves doing it, we can we just develop more a, a better ability to hang in there and just get to know this person and just develop a friendship, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then just just start at that place. But it's, get more it's, data. Get more data, but your the trauma brain doesn't want more data. It wants to stay safe. So is this what I'm doing with my romantic uh, partners? Am I just judging everyone that everybody is? Uh... I don't know. I don't know, man. I have no idea, and that's the because, dude. I still don't know if I'm still doing it. Like it, it's a, it's such a dude. It's such a mind fuck, man. It, it's like. <laughs> uh, (laughs) yeah man and and people you say oh how do you oh you say single you're you know you live alone you're like in solitude and And i'm like yeah i'm fine like my my trauma my trauma brain is like yo this is like so effing safe to me keep everybody in my relationships like at arm's length and all that but i know that i don't ultimately want to do that so i'm just sort of easing it in um and that can take a lot depending on you know what i mean like you, yeah. I, I mean, I was thinking about this this week, where I had the opportunity to meet some, hang out with some mm-hmm. very cute young women. Not that young. Mm-hmm. I guess I can't really say that anymore. <laughs> we can't say it yet. But uh, age appropriate mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? I just kind of want to play video games. And I know, like, that makes people crazy. But like, and I did. I had the judgment. I'm like, these people aren't okay because of this thing or the other thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like not gonna make that extra effort, mm-hmm. which is still required in 2020. Uh huh. Yeah, man. <laughs> and and, the, and it's and it's it's wild because like you you're used to trusting your own thoughts. So when like an unconscious sort of thing mm-hmm. is coming into the picture and reacting to a, a, tr- a trigger point, which might be authentically connecting. Or trying to get to new, no new, uh, getting to know new people or whatnot, then it, you're just chilling on a Friday afternoon, and you're like, you know what? I'm just gonna play video games instead. <laughs> and well, they're whatever anyway. And blah 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 blah. So there's a lot cloaked in that. Mm-hmm. It could be uh, you really just don't really want to be dating right now. It could be, you know, that the trauma brain is like, hell no. You know, it's just. Um, a good rule of thumb for me has been if there's a situation where I know that my abandonment stuff is going to come up or the trauma stuff is going to come up, I'm hyper aware of shit that I'll tell myself to get out mm-hmm. of that situation. And usually I'll be able to tell, yeah, no, dude, you're you're checking with your body. And I'll be like, oh, crap, I'm super nervous. <laughs> like, right, right. But again, this is why having some kind of mastery and and really you know when you're thinking about recovery kind of aiming for that mastery is important and mastery doesn't mean it's all good and it's all perfect but it does mean that you can have this process like you're talking because the just going with the opposite is not great either right that doesn't mean that you want to go 
you know, not have any boundaries and just chase inappropriate people and, you know, get, and, and it is, it is a thing that people who are hurt attract hurt people. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. to have, and not that you always have the, your finger on the pulse of that, but bro, my heart, it's a hard (laughs) thing, but it does require some, uh, some excellence. And even then you don't know, but having some mastery really does go a long way Mm -hmm. and mastery for me has been just awareness and it's it's interesting like some of my most damaging relationships ships have taught Mm -hmm. me the most and Mm -hmm. uh, what did uh i think i quote i have a ram das quote every week um said ram Das. some person asked him uh meditation teacher ram das what do i do with anger and he's like have more have a second helping yeah. You know, go go into it. Have at it. Be more righteous. You know, and to just see where it gets you. You know, as long as you're aware of what you're doing and you're aware of okay, maybe this isn't the best idea, you can then you get, you know, then you endure harm because of it. If it's a if just emotional harm from that. You get into negative situations and then sometimes that's how you learn. Um but then, you know, on the flip side of that, if you typically, if you're a woman, you typically get into uh, physically abusive situations, you know, then no, you should probably keep yourself safe and being right, more on the sure. cautious end of things. Um, so I think risk is certain risk and awareness. Um, those are two factors uh, that are really important. That's kind of the math I had to do for myself, too, because um, I, I would definitely get into these push pull kinds of situations and I wouldn't be willing to be honest with the person that I was dating and expressing, hey, I want to be with you. So I started to just challenge myself to make that grand romantic gesture Mm. um, when I felt it and when I got those signs that it was mutual. And is this person going to, you know, I don't know what they're going to do. I had to sort of accept the fact that if I make this gesture, if I am authentic, um, I might feel sad for a week or two. And that's just what it is. You know, there, there's risk involved in being vulnerable and being authentic. And I think we all have to acknowledge that risk. But that risk is uh, also um, held up against our awareness at the time of what we think risk is, what we think we're doing versus what we're actually doing. Um, it's, it's a confusing process, but self-reflection after each time is uh is is really helpful hmm. it is and then it's still kind of impossible to know or, or mm-hmm. is it is it so okay so mm. as people in recovery we we realize that there are a lot of red flags especially people who come from an abuse background we can i'm glad you brought this up because we can set we can be attracted to abusive people mm-hmm. right and it goes for men too like this isn't just women and a lot of men, I know a lot of men who have been in abusive relationships and they don't really talk about it. Physically abusive too. I know men who are in repeat physically abusive relationships. Strong guys, guys that if you saw on the street, you'd be like, oh, I can't be like, that's, don't mess with that guy. Mm-hmm. But they go home and they're, and, and they have, they serially de- date partners who beat the shit out of them. I went out with on a date last year and this girl was like, we were just kind of flirting. She's like, Oh yeah, come home, come home with me. Mm -hmm. 
asked me to like lay down in her bed and she put she like i she, she i was laying down and she mounted like she put her legs around me face down and she just started punching me in the back of the head as hard as she could what yeah like i don't know and like yeah. were there red flags were there not but these are this is not so i just want to preface mm-hmm. this i want to talk about this not only from mm-hmm. like it's only women because not mm-hmm. maybe it is mostly women but there are a lot of guys out there yeah. especially guys with mental health struggles that mm-hmm. don't want to talk about there's huge amounts of shame in admitting yeah. that you've been physically uh abused by partner or mentally and, and and probably more even mentally abusive like we all know it it's not necessarily yeah. the biggest rage to talk about on social media but uh, you know when you go to when i go to recovery circles um mm-hmm. for childhood abuse it's split 50 50 men women dealing with this shit in the past and now i don't that's just what i see so that yeah. said how do you know because you okay you want to open like there's this thing where right where you want to open yourself up and not be limited by the trauma mm. also you don't want you also want to be able to acknowledge the red flags so you stay safe mm-hmm. that's a tricky thing it is it is we just have to be aware that we all have a right to feel safe and if you are ever in a relational situation and you don't feel safe, you don't have to continue to be in in that space. Um, because even if it is some sort of traumatic projection of feeling not safe and you're, it's a strong trigger, if it's that strong of a trigger, maybe you need to work through your triggers more mm-hmm. before you're ready to re-enter into that situation. Because even you can say like, well... Um, you know, if uh, you know, if I if I'm uh, with with a woman and I feel really triggered, I can't just zen myself out and say, "No, Broderick, that fear is not real." Like, just mm. get it. It's it's this whole get over it narrative. It's like, right. no, you're uncomfortable, and this might be too much for you. And if this is too much for you, you might end up, you know, sort of cutting and running from this person, you know, in the cold of the night, um, and hurting them. And also you might be hurting yourself because if you're trying to sort of tough out uh, being triggered and feeling unsafe, then you might actually be doing more harm to yourself. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I was in, um, I was in a, a pretty um, just not helpful, I would say, uh, relationship with someone else with mental illness. Um, and in this space, we were just both so unaware of our fears and when we would hang out, it would just it would just be like a, a fear fest 25% of the time. And that's a large percentage. Yeah. Um, and I just remember certain things that were said to me that at the time I really internalized. But then later on, I was like, well, wait a second. No, she was just projecting, you know, and um, mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. if she had those same realizations. I have no idea. So um, you were with somebody that had a trauma response that wasn't like your initial harm but was echoing things that she had been dealt with and then you were responding to that and doing the same thing so it's like chicken in the egg right i've been in this situation as well like just around i mean being around other people who have been abused it like i i was in a situation like that last year as well and i didn't sleep for a week you know i couldn't like it bothered me so much Mm -hmm. that is a huge 
Yeah, issue. man. And, and why? A, mm-hmm. Yeah. Were I mean, for me, like I didn't know what the you know the background was, and it's I don't know. You know, it was I, that that was a situation where I wish somebody had disclosed their history more with me when yeah. there was this big a uh, big blow up because of an echo. Yeah. Or whatever, whatever you would call it. What, what was the or trigger? Yeah. And then it just uh, bounces back and forth and. And then you need like, mm-hmm. is there if you if you're in that situation, like, is it couples therapy? Like, is that the only thing you get out of that? I, I, I would say, yeah, because with this, <laughs> this ex partner I was with, I was yeah. like trying. I was pushing mm. like, let's go because like and I, I knew something was wrong. I knew that like I'm reacting because this isn't real. You know, I, I'll go home and I'll be ruminating and worrying about where I stand and all these different mm. things. Mm-hmm. And. Just like I was uncomfortable and I knew relationships aren't supposed to feel unsafe. So that's kind of what I was pushing. And then the more she was resistant with that, that's kind of where I knew I was like... She was resistant with therapy. With the couples therapy. She went to individual therapy, Mm -hmm. but um, so she was trying to hang in there. But it's just like for how long and how much Mm -hmm. harm is being done to each of us versus how much learning. Mm -hmm. And are we both consenting to being triggered in this way, yeah. but again, for for how for how long? Um, yeah, man, I would say I would say couples therapy. If if two people know they have a history of mental illness, and and they're you know they're still working on their recovery and all of that in their individual spaces, um, I would highly recommend seeking out a couples therapist and saying exactly that. Like this is our situation. This is where we trigger each other. We really care about each other, but sometimes we just both feel really unsafe and we want to learn strategies and ways to uh, soothe uh, the wounded parts of ourselves and and each other. But how do we make sure that there's balance in that, that there's grace in that, that there's a, a protocol for that? You know, we might know that when we get start to get angry, when someone get maybe gets angry with me, yeah. you know, I'm just going to get really angry with them. And then that really triggers the other person. And now they're having a panic attack. Right. We don't want that for our partner. So then it might mean developing a protocol like when we get upset and there's a, a spat. You know, I go out on the porch and I breathe and I and I relax. You go fix some tea and you watch your favorite show and we just put a pin in it and we breathe together. We slow down and we talk about it over breakfast the next day or, you know, something like like that. There has to be some way um, in place that's processed through and thought through uh, with someone who's holding that professional space um, for you both. Um, but this also might mean uh, spiritual counseling. You know, this might mean, I don't know, a trusted family member that helps you work those things out too. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's 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 ready made, um, but a couple's therapist would, is, is kind of ready made to do things exactly like that. But some kind of support might be Something. necessary. Yeah. Mediator. And when you say mm-hmm. safe, I want to I, I want to delve into that because there is like this kind of internet pop culture buzzword safe and then there's like psychologically safe inside of a relationship. And mm-hmm. those aren't necessarily the same thing. There's a lot of people 
there's a lot of people out there using psych, you know, psychological yeah. words yeah. that have never been to therapy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're just like, I don't feel safe. Go fuck yourself. And now I'm going to torture you <laughs> on the internet. <laughs> you know? like, yeah, I don't feel safe. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> now I'm going to make you not feel safe. Uh, right, right, right. <laughs> what, so what, what does it mean to feel safe in a relationship, especially a romantic relationship? Yeah. So safety, it has to do with levels of awareness. So level one of awareness of just... You know, aware of just uh, being a person. Two people are existing together. So here you and I are, a couple of bros, uh, <laughs> relating. So on one level, you know, there's a there are two bodies, right? And you see, okay, beards, glasses, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, and we see those we see those things. That's layer one. Layer two is our psychology, our personality. You know, Jesse's kind of like this. He, these are his pet peeves. These are his likes, dislikes, his, you know, what music he listens to. Here's Broderick stuff. He's like this. He's like that. So then usually people only relate to those two frames of awareness. Yeah. So then if you say uh, Wu-Tang Clan sucks and people listening, Jesse would never say it. But if he did... And then I got really upset, and then I was like, "Oh, you don't like Wu Tang? Well, I'm done. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I quit. You know what I mean? Like that. Because if I was only relating to those two frames, then I would need you to be completely similar to me, you know. So then, I, and then also the way that I might handle in a in a romantic relationship, if I need time away to deal with my feelings, even if it's thirty minutes." But then my partner needs me to process through with them right there and they can't be alone. Now there's all, oh, well, your needs don't match my needs. So fuck you, you know, and that. So on those two frames of awareness, mm-hmm. what I just described was bodies. And then I described preferences. Mm-hmm. If we only relate to those two spaces, we might be body shaming, but then also just shaming people for um you know, just individual preferences and psychology, which has nothing to do with the other person, it has everything to do with your upbringing and your preferences that you didn't choose you were born to. So as you develop, you just, you're kind of happening. So that doesn't matter. That third layer of awareness, that's where it's at. The third layer of awareness is that awareness that behind the eyes, for me and you and everybody out there, there's some being, some entity in there that doesn't want to feel pain and doesn't want to hurt others because that being, that entity knows what that feels like. That that universal experience of wanting pleasure and not wanting pain, that universal consciousness. So as we relate to each other from that space, then the fact that you don't like Wu-Tang doesn't matter as much because you're just a guy who maybe you maybe you uh you grew up uh, you know you grew up where you grew up and you met method man once and he spit on your shoes or something you know that that's that that's an individual experience that you had that colored your idea about wu-tang so how can i get mad at you for having an experience so similar within relationships if i had experiences where i became overwhelmed when people were upset with me and went into my room and that made me feel okay, feel okay. I feel safe. I'm not reacting anymore. Okay. I can actually think how can someone get mad at me for my own upbringing? 
I can't get mad at someone else for their own upbringing either because they had no control over that. So safety is feeling safe to have my individual stuff and all of those things without someone judging that individual stuff. But when we're operating from that third rain, that third level of awareness, that there's just a being in here that wants the same thing as you, happiness and not pain, then we're all very similar in that way. But we only typically relate on those first two planes, and then we just end up judging each other and shaming each other for the ways in which we were we were brought up. Um, yeah. That is a much different uh, version than the internet um, culture makes it out to be. Mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm. like a much more wholesome, very nice thing. <laughs> uh, that's hard to use as a weapon, you know, and that's kind of how people use it, it online. I, what do you just overall? I, this is a little bit, uh, to, you know, getting off the point, but I am curious to like, what do you think about people using so many like psycholo psychology terms or just like recovery terms in their mm -hmm. everyday language of like of the internet and internet culture? Mm. Do you think it's a, a problem or you think mm -hmm. whatever, let them have it? People are going to do what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So I think I'm just that's making like, myself miserable having a judgment about it. Uh, you're, you're noticing something. Yeah. And, and also, I think when you begin to raise your level of consciousness in any respect, in any respect, when you start to deep dive and read the books and listen to the podcasts and have a deeper level of knowledge... People are saying things from their level of knowledge. So there might be, you know what I'm saying? So I think this all the time. Like sometimes I think there might be some other black doctor out there who's been, <laughs> you know, on they're on Twitter and they're, you know, 20 years older than me. And they might be looking at some of the shit that I'm saying. They're like, man, this young gun doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. You know, but how the hell am I supposed to know what I don't know. And then also, what about the people who get a lot out of what someone might be saying, even sure. if um, even if they, they aren't as aware? Because sometimes it, someone can say um, <laughs> so, someone can say something like, uh, well, well, I don't think masculinity is toxic. I love my masculinity. I refuse to give that up. You know, just very getting very defensive about it. Someone following a man who's following might be like, huh, I previously really appreciated everything that this person said, but that just seemed kind of petty and insecure. Interesting. Am I kind of insecure if I question my own masculinity? If I, huh. So sometimes people saying things from a place of ignorance can enlighten others into their own ignorance and also vice versa. Someone can say something from a place of like, rah, da, 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 and then afterwards realize like to themselves, wow, actually I don't know what I'm talking about and I'm totally overcompensating by using these psychology terms on, on Twitter, you know? So it's uh, people, people are smart. It's just the slowing down, I think, to really consider what, a lot of the terms actually mean or doing the deep dives and continuing one's knowledge. Um, I think that's an ongoing process. Um, I, Cause even when I was in grad school, I, I quote unquote knew a lot, 
about stuff. But then I think of, you know, two years ago, me, and I'm like, this guy didn't fucking know anything. Um, but I knew what I knew. I knew all that I knew. And um, yeah, it's 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 tricky, man. It's tricky. Well, those are kind of, I think that there's two things there. One is like just being a creative person and making creative work, whether that's academic creative work or podcasts or just your intellectual discovery. I have a couple of years on you in this regard. And for me, you know, for me, like I would always be immediately judgmental. I would look at my work like, oh, three years ago and go, oh, what the fuck? Oh, <laughs> terrible. I did. And then like 10 years later, I'm like, oh, that's just perfect for the time. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. there's this kind of thing you need like that amount of distance. And maybe in 20 years, I'll judge it more. And then in 30 years, I'll like it more. But it's not a it's I, for me. It's been like that's been a very looking back on my old thoughts and my old work it's uh it shifts it shifts and i'll tell you i like the more time goes though like the more like affection i have for even if if i didn't have mm. the whole picture like especially in documentary work like there are more things that i'm like i'm plugged into that was totally the right note even if it wasn't totally yeah yeah fully yeah. flourished yeah, uh, especially around like social justice stuff and just like the casting that I did and the people that mm-hmm. I worked with and the things that I'm like, I could do these shows today. And yeah, there were a lot of technical things that I would have done differently three years after I made them. But as far as the tone mm-hmm. and the resonance, I'm like, yeah, that was that was 10 years ahead of its time. Um, so getting back to relationships, mm-hmm. um. I don't know. It's hard. People are struggling out there um, yeah, man. on how to do this. We talked, we did two episodes. We did one episode on loneliness with Jillian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The time before that, we did just an episode on loneliness. Now we're talking about struggles. Do we do, you know, with mental health? Mm-hmm. Noted. I just want to take some time to acknowledge everyone that's even out there trying. If you're at mm-hmm. home and you've made it to this far in the podcast, I want to acknowledge you for staying in the game, for doing this work. And if you've you know listened this far and you're still engaged, that is a very special place to be because it's not mm-hmm. easy for anybody. Mm-hmm. During COVID, normal, no, I don't know, normal people, but like securely mm-hmm. attached people yeah. are having full-on panic attacks. Yeah, uh, just, just trying to like have a business meeting, let alone trying to find a partner so i know a lot of people are out there still figuring out how to date there's no rules there's no right there's no mm-hmm. wrong maybe there's some wrong there might be a couple. <laughs> if yeah, you're going yeah, to a yeah. beach party yeah i saw that fire island video from last oh, week oh dude yeah man come on yeah what do you what do you people think come on you can't do this. relationships man it's uh and also just to to comment on you know, for those listening, they may not know what Jesse means by securely attached. Yes, this is what, my next yeah. question. What is this? Yeah, what dude. does it mean? Oh yeah, attachment. This is all about a, a attachment theory. And let me just—I'll give some free advertising. Um, I don't know if it'll be backwards on the camera though. Oh well, you can see the picture. I can so see this, it on my feed. It's it's right. My, I'm backwards on my own feed. So oh, okay, nice. Yeah. Well, it's a book called Attached that has magnets on the cover by Levine and Heller. My stepbrother was just telling me about this yesterday in a phone call. Bro, 
yeah. good book. I heard yeah. you through the ether. Um, but attachment theory is what this is all about. So there are, I'll just use the three basic ones just for simplicity. So there's securely attached, which is I feel secure in my relationships. My When I was upset, my caregivers, you know, or people around me who raised me, uh, they were attuned to my being upset and helped me through it, but didn't overwhelm me. Um, so then there's uh, anxiously attached and anxious attachment is kind of like, you don't know what to expect from other people. You're like checking in, you're like, Oh, everybody hates me. I need to like do things to, I need to perform for them, you know, so that they'll, I'll keep them. Oh no, I I don't know what to expect. And caregivers might've been really unavailable. So you're kind of like, Oh, um, or your parents also might've been, your caregivers might've been really, really overwhelming. So you just learn to relate in those overwhelming ways. Then there's avoidant, and avoidant is a way to really compensate um, for people maybe not being there. So you sort of lose a taste for something if you didn't get it. Uh, so I like to use uh, a metaphor. And so say, you know, I'm, I'm little baby Broderick and I'm running around on my, my parents' uh, carpet and then I bump my knee for the first time and I'm starting to bleed for the first time ever. My experience, very normal experience to many adults, but for me, it's like, what the fuck is this red shit coming out of my body? What the hell is that? I didn't know that was in there. Um, so my parent could have one of three responses. So they can say, look, and be like, ah, you're fine. Throw some dirt on it. Uh, I've went through that. So you're not a big deal to me, right? So what just happened there? My experience was invalidated, mm. you know, by a parent who isn't attuning to the fact that that was the first time that's happened to me. So that's response number one. And that might, then I say to myself as a child, I'm like, oh, okay, so whenever I experience emotional pain, I should just ignore it and then not tell anybody? Okay, cool, I got it. And then that's reinforced over time and that'll develop an avoidant attachment. Um, but then uh, what if my parent goes, oh no, my poor baby, ah, and like now I'm like reacting like, oh, oh crap, maybe I should really be freaking out about this. Mm -hmm. So now I, I learn, okay, so whenever I feel emotional pain or physical pain, I should like freak out and cling to the people around me and beg them to take away my pain. Okay, cool. I got it. Then okay, back, back up, back up, back up, back yeah, up. Yeah. Okay, okay. Slow me so, down, so, 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 okay, so the first thing. The parent goes, invalidates you. Is like, I've been through is. this. It's no big deal. How does that uh, walk me through that again? Just step by step. How? Why does that mean that you're going to develop um, mm -hmm. avoidant attachment? Yeah, because you learn to relate to your own pain in an avoidant way. You invalidate and pretend it. It's uh, avoidant attachment is very unconscious, very unconscious, because you don't know that you're denying the pain. Uh -huh. Or you're denying the need to connect and have your pain and your your intimate, you know, self seen by another because you've been told through just reinforcement over time. Because then if it's one thing, if it's just uh, bumping into a coffee table, then if you're spending all this time with this caregiver, there are micro moments over time that happen just like that one. So then you learn to relate to others by keep by not saying anything. So then when someone, you know, comes along and says, wow, Broderick's great, this, this, and that, da, 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 da. Um, 
wow, I really want to get to know him. And then they start asking me questions. Then I might feel just walled off, you know, and, and, you know, and feel normal about that. But they're kind of like, well, you know, what's your deal? What's your number? I'm kind of like, hmm, I don't know. Mm. You know what I mean? It's just like I have no memory of my narrative sense of self, my authenticity, because it was never shown to me that that was important information to disclose or to share. Right. But that doesn't mean the neediness, neediness isn't there. It's still festering under the surface. It's just that you don't believe that anybody else is going to either be there for yeah. you or help you. Yeah. And I might not even be conscious of that need. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I might not even know that I need it. You see? So that's um, the other difficulty with avoidant attachment is that we're denying that we need it because we're not going to get it when we're in those environments with the invalidating caregiver. Because if you admitted you needed it to yourself as a kid, then you would be having a really hard time as a kid. So you just deny it, deny it, deny it until you become aware, like, hmm, I kind of want a relationship. Okay, let me try. And then you're like, why can't I? What happened? Why can't I relate and open up? Why do I keep pushing people away? Why am I chronically single what what is this you know um so that's more of the avoidance style um and then the anxious style is the really kind of the opposite end of the spectrum and and all this you know get the book check it out google Mm -hmm. it it's more complicated i'm like breaking it down yeah um but the anxious style now if my caregiver relates to my experience as like oh my goodness oh we need to like sit down and talk about this and Oh, your knee, is it okay? And and overwhelming. And then I feel like now there's this overimportance, you know, in describing my experiences and sitting my partner down and yeah, I ate a turkey, turkey club, you know, for, for lunch, but it was a little dry and then I didn't know what to do. So then I had to, I put a little mustard on it and thank God that solved the problem. And then I had this thought that maybe I, and it's just like saying everything and then needing the partner to to really uh, soothe all of that, which then overwhelms the partner. Mm-hmm. But that's based on that model that the caregiver developed for you, and that those like micro moments leading to that type of style. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is the secure attachment. I mean, I'll just say a, a note on anxious attachment. I think the the one of the more difficult uh, attachment styles to be in a relationship with is avoidant. I think it's easier to be in a to have an anxious a, attachment style and be in a relationship as long as there's good communication mm-hmm. and anxious attachment actually talk about in this book it it lowers over time so your anxiety lessens over mm-hmm. time because you start to learn what to expect from the caregiver it's just certainty um, and then the last piece secure attachment so let's use that example again I bumped my knee and then my parent is oh you bumped your knee oh man like here let me mirror you know, your affect, your, oh, yeah, like that hurt, didn't it? Here, let's go get a Band-Aid. I might, you know, soothe you a little bit. Oh, you know, but here, you felt pain. I'm validating that pain. But then also, hey, here's a Band-Aid. And maybe here, let's go out for ice cream or something like that. And then there's that balance between invalidation and also resilience building. Okay, and that sort of style, that secure attachment style within oneself they can see their partners as both good and bad. They can, you know, relate to their partners, uh, you know, with and, and promote resilience. 
um, but then also at the same time soothe them when they might need that. But that's what a secure attachment style looks like. And um, again, really rec- recommend this book because it also talks about how to change your attachment style and become more secure. You know, so that's the other piece, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and even mindfulness as well and meditation can create an environment of, you know, sort of self-validation and self-attunement and, and really help you relate to yourself in securely attached ways. And then you start to relate to others in securely attached ways as well. Can you be like different styles with different types of people in your life? Can you be like, oh, yeah, dude. Yeah, I think I, I think I'm like avoidant in romantic relationships and then like anxious with like clients and bosses and stuff. Yeah, totally, man. Totally. It's uh, and it's interesting you're noticing this because that's what it all it is. It's awareness of what mm-hmm. contexts bring out different attachment styles. Um. And I think romantic relationships in particular or intimate friendships or whatnot, that's going to bring out um, the more um, more fear based coping styles, Um, because, you know, when you say you might be avoidant if you can get away from people. But if you have a boss, you can't get away from that boss. So then you might be more likely to be anxious, Mm -hmm. but uh, avoidant attachment as well as. Uh, anxious attachment, fear is there just the same. It's just, uh, is the fear unconscious? Is it conscious? Can I just get out of the situation? Do I have to be in the situation? Right, right. You know, so it's all a lot of context, um, which complicates things because people want ready-made answers, you know. (laughs) For sure. And there's no ready-made answers. You just got to do the work and be aware and continue that awareness and i don't do you get to a point where you just like put this stuff behind you ever dr broderick you get to just like say i'm Mm. done i got to the secure Mm. level of attachment and now i'm uh Mm -hmm. done as as we're Uh, wrapping up yeah i mean i'm sure that there's some place where you could hypothetically say that but what would be the utility what would be the use of saying that like to feel to feel good, uh, to to say I'm done, just to stop doing the work, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I fucking I've played that game with myself, mm-hmm. and every every time I've said, "Wow, I'm done, I'm cool, I'm good," something else would come up, and I find that uh, you know, for myself as well as um, patients that I treat, it's better to just continue your work and continue to be aware. While you're also living a valued life, you know, having a mental illness doesn't mean to stop chasing your passions, to stop chasing um, love if that's what you're looking for and deepening your relationships. Um, All it means is that you want to be aware of yourself and develop self-awareness around, you know, what your stuff is and what you're what you're still working on. Um, And we don't have to look at it like a problem. We look at mental illness like it's a problem rather than just you know, a way of being that is both both bad sometimes and maybe good in others um, uh, as far as just just resilience and, you know, for myself, like the charisma, making people laugh and stuff like that. This is like stuff that came out of trauma, you know, so it's mm-hmm. it's both good and bad. Right. So rather than looking at mental illness in that way, it's just something that you carry with you. Um, and that and that's it. You know, everyone suffers and feels pain in one way or another. Um, but we don't have to put our lives on hold. 
I would just say uh, self-awareness is, is king uh, when it comes to living a valued life despite uh, having uh, struggled with mental illness um, and really been through dark times. Um, that, that self-awareness is just so key in helping you learn what you need in your life to feel happy uh, and what, what triggers you, what you don't need, what types of people you need around you. Uh, even recently for myself, I learned that, hey, Broderick, you know, you're used to uh, coping with the needs of others before yourself. So how do you, you know, just why, how do you just accept the fact that you really, really like to help people and you can't shut it off, you know, but how do you make sure that you also take care of yourself so that you don't burn out so that you find happiness so that you get your needs met you know you're able to uh you know get you know get the same fruits as a quote-unquote like normal person Mm -hmm. um i still agree with uh oh dear lord i still agree with uh one of kanye west's lines uh you saw why so man (laughs) this this guy um because i believe he's very open about his bipolar uh one diagnosis and I remember in some song he was um, <laughs> maybe unhealthily, uh, that's not a word, uh, ranting about it. But he's like, this is my superpower. I'm a superhero. And it was just like this this whole thing. But in many ways, like if you learn how to channel, you know, your your story or your or your, you know, or your trauma into something that helps others, then in that way it, it can be or, or creativity or different things like that. Um, it might even, you know, help you in relationships in one way or another. Like who, who knows? But you have to be aware and we have to develop that self-awareness. And that's not for me to tell anybody how to view that. Um, but I think the self-awareness will, will help them realize, oh, okay, I can sort of use this in this way or relate to this part of myself in this way, you know? For sure. Especially in a place. And when you do, when you do that, work and you learn how to channel you also learn how to channel it in ways with boundaries like um mm. kirk uh kirk honda the psychology in seattle podcast um he said he said that you know he had those kind of like codependent always have to fix everything tendencies but then when he was able to challenge that energy into being a therapist and doing psychoeducation work he didn't have it anymore. He got all that out, and then he had a healthy place to put it, and it wasn't just this like unhinged, like mm-hmm. you know, solo thing. It was just like, okay, here's a project that has rules. Here's a project that has boundaries. That has legal ramifications, and you just sit yourself in that, and then right. it transforms. So it's possible, and it's trans. It's it's possible to transform so much of this energy. I have. So much respect for for our friends and comrades who who suffer from mental illness. Like, so I, it's so it's so rare to find people who are both really smart and have huge hearts. And I am lucky to know a lot of them, and almost all of them struggle with these things in some regard. So there's like you know, if you can get to the other side, I will say, if you're at home. And you're disabled with a mental illness and it's not going very well right now. I know you will hate me for saying this because I've been there. But there are advantages once you can get it under control. And it took me years and years and years. So don't give up. 
just and 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 shut me out if you hear people saying that there's good side to mental illness shut it out for as long as you need but just keep mm-hmm. working and then mm-hmm. when you are ready to channel into that uh energy and that path it's going to be there for you with yeah. a lot of great people who have been able to do that as well mm. uh, Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts, Dr. Broderick? Yeah, yeah, I loved what you just said, man. If you're stuck in the mud, you can't begin to use it for fuel until you're out of it. Yeah. You know, so if you're stuck at home, um, if, you, if you haven't already, like try to see about some some virtual services or something. Even if you're just, I mean, telehealth these days, it, it's really flexible. You can lay down while you're talking to your therapist. You can... You know what I mean? Or you, if you're not ready for that, you can just do some reading. You know, you're listening to a podcast. That's great. Listen to more. Mm-hmm. You know, just you use that time uh, to recuperate, to recover, to know you're not alone. Uh, and then all of those those hours you you log in that way, uh, it it'll contribute. You know, yeah. it, it does contribute. I think it's very hard to see that. Um, and even in the relationships that that you're in right now to people. Um, you know, paying more attention to those relationships. What, what do I want uh, from others? What do I want from myself and from my life? And starting to ask these these questions and using relationships as a vehicle for awakening to that authentic self. Um, it's it's not easy. I, I feel like we could do <laughs> several more podcasts on. This has just been like a series on relating. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, we'll think about that for next week. If there's something you want to hear, let us know. Let us know. Hit us up on Twitter. Go to mentalhealthmedia.org, and you can hit the uh, submission form. Um, We might even be able to go to brodericksawyer.com very soon Mm, and submit uh, if you want to talk. You know, if you've got got a question that's like, yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't think I want Jesse to hear this question. (laughs) You could submit directly to Dr. Broderick Sawyer on uh, Twitter, broderickA88. That's right, right? Yes, sir. And then uh, BroderickSawyer.com. Probably going to be up by the time this airs. And uh, I'm Zookman, at Zookman on the Twitter machine. And um, and that'll that'll wrap this one. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you. Uh, thank you for, for just being there. And uh, until next week, look out for each other and take care of yourself. That's right. Zygazunt. Peace. Thanks for tuning in, everybody, and thanks to our guest this week, Jillian Richardson, author of Unlonely Planet, a manual for creating community, finding friends in this day and age. Um, Super great book, a book that has changed my life. Pick it up um, wherever you can find it. Uh, Highly recommended. Um, And our theme song, Total Meltdown by Total Meltdown, New York hardcore band, Um, some of my friends back home, Shout out to Chris Enriquez and the crew. Uh, you can check them out, totalmeltdownnyhc.bandcamp.com. Um, you can follow me, Zookman, at Z-O-O-K-M-A-N-N on Twitter. Dr. Broderick is BroderickA88 on Twitter. Working on a new uh, website for him. That'll be up sooner than later. See how fast. See how fast I can make a website these days. Uh, with all the stress going on. I'm very slow, very slow. My work is slow, but that's okay. It's going to be a good website, and when it's up, 
There's going to be meditations. There's going to be info on Dr. Broderick, ways to make a political impact and plug into activist coalition. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. Uh, as always, our show is executive produced by A.V. Flocks. And a special thanks to Tom Trottier, Tamara Broadhead, and Patrick Mohan. And thanks to all of our GoFundMe supporters. Neil D., Mecky M., Carolina P., Ryan P., Chip and Nads, Metal D., Tall Paul M., Joel R., Ben G., Vinny R., Patty M., Sean H., Linda E., Franklin G., Johnny P., Sophia M., Jackie M., Bob S., Rose P., Jeannie A., Handy H., Tim W., Stephanie P., Patrick L., Judy B., David L., Stuart M., Jim E., Cash G., Sean D., The Smo, Alex B., Marilyn S., Colin F., Lauren B., Patricia M., Phil A., and Ivan M. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, oh, and of course, I, I didn't plug the website. Check out the website, mentalhealthmedia.org. Uh, and if you're looking for the meditations, mentalhealthmedia.org slash meditation. You can see all the meditations with Dr. Broderick. I don't know how I left that out. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening. Until next time, take care of yourself and look out for each other. Zai Gazant.